This podcast is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific, dedicated to providing clinicians with tools to help determine whether to initiate and when to stop antibiotic therapy in patients presenting with lower respiratory tract infection and those with suspected or confirmed sepsis. The Brahms PCT assay is used in hospitals nationwide to support antibiotic stewardship and is available on multiple immunoassay platforms from BioMeru, Roche, Abbott, Fujirabio, Diaz-Serin, Siemens, and Thermo Fisher Scientific. Learn more at thermoscientific.com backslash about sepsis. Hello and welcome to the iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today, we'll be speaking with Simon Lam, PharmD, on an article published in Critical Care Medicine focused on antimicrobial management in critically ill patients. Dr. Lam is from the Cleveland Clinic, and we welcome him here today. Thank you. Happy to be here. I should say a very interesting article. I've been using procalcitonin in my practice for now a couple of years, and I uh, always believe that procalcitonin has a role, but probably not in every patient. But this article uh, made me think a little more about uh, procalcitonin. You know, in your study, you mentioned that you have done the systematic review and meta-analysis to evaluate the true effect size of procalcitonin-guided strategies in different phases of antimicrobial use. Could you explain the different phases of antimicrobial use to the listeners here? Yeah, absolutely. So I I guess I'll start with saying, you know, what was the impetus for this systematic review and meta-analysis? I mean, there's many other meta-analyses out there, but I think one of the common issues with the existing meta-analyses are combining all different studies of procalcitonin, regardless of the phase of antimicrobial use. Um, and kind of what I mean is, you know, if, as clinicians, if we, if we are honest with ourselves, how we use procalcitonin when we are initiating antibiotics and when we stop antibiotics might be very different. For example, when someone comes in and they're critically ill and they look like they're infected, our inclination is to start antibiotics. Um, and that's probably true regardless of what the procalcitonin shows. And vice versa, you know, when someone's ready to stop the antibiotics, uh, I think we're more inclined to listen to the procalcitonin results um, when, you know, the patients are, are already getting better. So, you know, understanding the differences in the initiation phase when patients are sick um, and we don't know, you know, what's the cause of their shock, we might be more inclined to give antibiotics and less inclined to listen to a biomarker result. And, you know, in the scenario where we're just drawing procalcitonin in patients who are not critically ill uh, or not uh, acutely ill, just to, I guess, uh, start antibiotics earlier in those patients. Um, it might be an early indication that they have infection. Um, we might be inclined to listen to those because we don't want to get, you know, we've all been taught how important getting antibiotics correctly in the, in the first hour is. So we, we might be inclined to listen um, when the procalcitonin result is positive. So I, I think there's just differences in how clinicians should use or do use procalcitonin. And therefore, you know, combining studies that evaluate procalcitonin in the initiation phase of antibiotics versus the discontinuation phase, I think, um, may lead to, you know, just differences in, you know, or, or diluting the, the true effect size and whatnot. And that was really the impetus on, on why we did this meta-analysis. Um, it was to try to separate out and or tease out the differences in the, in the various phases of antimicrobial use. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. No, it, it does. It totally does. You know, uh, this, is, this is all great. Um, during, you know, in the paper, while you were, while I was reading this, uh, there were a couple of things that caught my eye. You know, one was the mention of duration of antibiotics. 
Now, as we know, you know, practicing medicine, that the duration of antibiotics is, for most of the conditions that we treat, a sort of a ballpark idea. It's more of non-evidence-based, but expert opinion number. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So as you already mentioned, you know, there's very little evidence to guide how long we should treat patients, even when they, when we know for sure that they have an infection. Um, you know, we, we joke around and say we basically use football numbers, um, you know, 7, 14, 21, you know, how many touchdowns is it um, to determine how many days of antimicrobials we should use. Um, and particularly in critically ill patients, there, there's just not many studies uh, evaluating, hey, is a shorter duration better or is a longer duration better? Um, but of the studies that I, that I know of, pretty much every time this question has been asked, uh, a shorter duration seems definitely no worse than a longer duration. And if anything, you can make an argument that shorter duration leads to less adverse events and also less uh, uh, antimicrobial resistance in the long term. Um, I, I think this has been well proven in ventilator-associated pneumonia, where you know 15 versus uh, 8 days, really no difference. It's been proven in um, intra-abdominal infections, um, you know, 14 days versus 5 days in the New England Journal of um, Medicine article. Uh, you know, one of the criticism of that article is that there, was, there wasn't many um, critically ill patients, but it was been subsequently mm -hmm. duplicated in the critically ill patients in intensive care medicine and pretty similar results. Shorter duration is better. Uh, if we go by community acquired pneumonia, the CAP guidelines kind of say, you know, treat at least five days, but, you know, wait, wait, you know, essentially a shorter duration, but use clinical criteria, you know, like no fever um, and white blood cell uh, coming down, et cetera, to, to guide duration of treatment. Um, so I, you know, I really think we don't know how long we should treat patients. And, you know, the, the old adage of, uh, you know, everyone must finish their antibiotic course. You know, I'm not sure, I'm not so sure if that's necessarily true. Okay. You know, that's, that sounds kind of like what I practice or I think about when I look at duration of antibiotic use. Can you explain uh, your classification of procalcitonin strategy in this paper? Yeah, absolutely. So as I previously mentioned, uh, we try to break it up into studies that look specifically at the initiation phase of antibiotics, whether or not, you know, when someone first comes in the door, we're deciding whether or not we should give antibiotics. That would be considered the initiation phase. Or the cessation phase where, you know, it's been a few days um, and now the patient might be getting better uh, and we're determining whether or not we should stop antibiotics or de-escalate antibiotics. Uh, there's also studies that um, essentially evaluated both phases. So we, we kind of call those the mixed procalcitonin studies. Um, and we look specifically for, um, you know, randomized control studies that evaluated the use of procalcitonin in critically ill patients in uh, each of these three phases or the, these three groups. Um, and we were able to include about 15 studies with the majority of them in the cessation phase. I, I believe the final numbers were three in the initiation and three in the mixed and then the remainder were all in the cessation phase. Okay, no, that's that's really well explained. So, why did you think about differentiating these studies when you looked at procalcitonin use? Yeah, and I, you know, I think going back to, um, you know, the clinicians use procalcitonin differently, um, and clinicians, you know, once again, in, in the initiation phase, might be less inclined to listen to a biomarker, um, and and I think that's true when you look specifically into the various studies. Uh, in the studies for initiation, the you know when the procalcitonin results in the negative, you know the the compliance rate is really low, and the, and the compliance rate is much higher when when procalcitonin indicates that there is an infection, and I think that speaks to how we practice you know as clinicians. Um, so once again, combining all of these studies into one meta analysis, 
um, probably will dilute out the true effect size of procalcitonin. So for the purpose of this meta-analysis, we chose to specifically look at these three phases separately, um, hoping to tease out you know, whether there's you know, outcome differences. And kind of our hypo hypothesis is that procalcitonin probably has a mortality benefit, but because previous meta-analyses have combined all of them together, that effect size is, is diluted out and therefore you couldn't find a, a mortality benefit. Yeah, I think your paper also mentioned somewhere, probably in the discussion part, that, um, you know, that your meta-analysis, uh, looking at the mixed strategy procalcitonin used, uh, you guys found that there was, it was not associated with an improvement in mortality. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the findings of the study is, you know, when you, when you combine all the studies together, all 15 studies, no difference in, in, in short-term mortality. And that's pretty much, you know, in agreement with all the other meta-analyses that are out there. But when we start separating out, you know, the various phases of antibiotic use, the cessation phase actually did show uh, a significant decrease in mortality associated with procalcitonin use. Interestingly, you know, when we use the, um, when we combine all the studies in the mixed strategies, um, meaning procalcitonin was used in both the initiation and cessation phase, that there was no mortality benefit. Uh, I think that could be attributable to a number of things, um, but namely, there's only three studies that looked at, um, the mixed strategies, um, and only one of those studies was of, you know, a, a decent size, a decent number of patients in them. So I think it, it just might be the fact that, you know, one, it's diluting the, the use of procalcitonin in the initiation phase is diluting out the effect. And two, there's just not enough studies. Um, there are not enough, uh, sample size or power to find the mortality difference. So, uh, you know, coming back to guidelines and uh, expert opinions, can you talk about the, the, the SSC guidelines a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Survival Sepsis Campaign guidelines definitely sees, you know, initiating in, uh, early antibiotics as important, and they, and they recommend giving that in the first hour. And, you know, my, our study really doesn't disagree with that in any shape, way, shape, or form. If anything, our study basically says use clinician opinion. You know, if you think a patient is sick, you should initiate antibiotics. But when, when should you use... Um, procalcitonin is in the cessation phase, you know, when patients are getting better, when we're thinking about, oh, what is the right duration of treatment or should we de-escalate further? Maybe procalcitonin will have a role in that, in, in that setting. Um, currently, the, the campaign guidelines do have um, a weak recommendation in there um, for the use of biomarkers. Um, they didn't, I'm not sure if they specifically said procalcitonin, but biomarkers, and I think they list procalcitonin as um, one of the choices uh, for the de-escalation of antibiotics, but it's a super weak recommendation. So I, I would say, you know, our article is also in, in uh, concordance with what the guideline is currently recommending, and hopefully the article gives a little bit more evidence behind what the guidelines are currently recommending. What do you think of other markers like, you know, presepsin or ProDam or, uh, you know, CD87 or Estrem? Do you have any... Uh on using these markers along with procalcitonin and maybe just these markers? Yeah, you know, honest, honestly, I, I, I can't speak so much about those markers. And I'm not terribly familiar with them. So uh, if, if, you, if you have any opinion, I, I welcome you to, to you know, um, give your opinions on those biomarkers. But I would say procalcitonin has been well studied. Um, its kinetics is um, it's kind of ideal in terms of, um, you know, not being not not too long of a half-life so we can evaluate you know how treatment is affecting the procalcitonin level and not having too short of a half-life um 
so that we don't detect it if any if any um, initial um, in, in, in any initial increases happen. Um, so kinetic wise, I think procalcitonin is a pretty ideal type of biomarker. And it took many, many years of, of procalcitonin study to get to this point. So I, I'm aware of the new biomarkers, but I think there'll be, you know, once again, many years before uh, those probably come to fruition and we can get useful information out of them. But I'm, I'm interested in hearing your opinions. No, I have no opinions. I've never used these markers. You know, I was, I was looking forward to hearing from people who are doing studies in antibiotic uh, or, you know, I should say infectious disease markers to help with antibiotic therapy. Mm-hmm. A little, I should say, a little experience in uh, the use of procalcitonin as a marker. I, you know, we routinely use it in our surgical ICUs. Yeah, so what would be your recommendations on using procalcitonin for initiation and for cessation? Would you uh, recommend that, antibi- uh, that procalcitonin be used in, uh, in the ICUs routinely? You know, I, I, I would. Um, so once again, going back to we don't know what is the correct duration of treatment, even when patients are infected. Um, how I would use procalcitonin is, you know, when someone comes in and we're thinking about starting antibiotics, um, if, if the clinician believes that the person should get antibiotics, we should start it. Because once again, we can't afford to get uh, mistreat the patient in the initial days of, of therapy. Um, but we should draw a baseline procalcitonin, and we sh- but we shouldn't make many decisions off of the baseline. Uh, it's we, we draw it pretty much just for trending purposes, and then when you know a patient has gotten better, and we're trying to decide should we deescalate further or should we stop therapy altogether, we draw procalcitonin, and if the procalcitonin has dropped by more than let's say eighty percent, or if the absolute value is less than 0.5, then I think you can safely stop antibiotics at that point. So I guess that's how I would recommend using procalcitonin. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, kind of local differences between different institutions, you know, ranging from what is your choice of empiric antibiotics, uh, what is your usual duration of treatment, what is the epidemiology. But I would say, you know, just overall, that's probably what I would recommend for most centers, but every center might, be, might vary a little bit differently. So where do you think future studies should be focused on in uh, procalcitonin? Yeah, so I, I, I think we should no longer study procalcitonin for the initiation of antibiotics, um, meaning I, I feel like it's pretty definitive that if patients don't look like they're infected and we draw procalcitonin purely to see if there's a chance that they might be infected, I, I feel like those studies are pretty definitive saying procalcitonin does not help. And if anything, it might increase your use of antibiotics and therefore have increased adverse events and maybe have may, maybe increased morbidity. Um, I think future studies should really focus on the cessation phase. Um, and currently there is, there is one study that I know of that's out of Greece uh, where they're looking specifically in patients who have sepsis, so critically ill patients, and they're using procalcitonin purely for the cessation of antibiotics. Um, so I, I think the study is ongoing and, and I'm looking forward to those results. I will wait for those results to come out and see what they recommend. So Simon, I hear uh, from a bunch of my friends here in the surgical ICU that you're interested in pharmacoeconomics and that's your major field. How does pharmacoeconomics play into your procalcitonin trial? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, essentially pharmacoeconomics is it's a way for us to quantify how much more a specific therapy would cost for a unit of benefit. Um, so take procalcitonin as an example. You know, uh, uh, your administrator might not be inclined to use procalcitonin because it's going to cost some money to uh, build the platform to test it. It's going to cost some money to run each test. It's going to have some personnel time. 
and all those cost money, right? And we live in a society where, um, you know, our resources are, is not limitless. limitless. Um, however, you know, I think the argument could be, you know, does procalcitonin maybe decrease your antibiotic use? Um, and if so, does that decrease its cost? And more importantly, procalcitonin might have a mortality benefit when using the right setting. And as, you know, as healthcare professionals, we have to all agree that health is an important thing. Because and, and health costs money, um, so it, it could be that you know procalcitonin is actually a worthwhile therapy, even though it has increased costs, because it has incremental benefits in health, and it might decrease your antimicrobial costs. You know, one of the issues with our healthcare system, though, is is that everything is just so siloed. Meaning, you know, we try to quantify costs in the laboratory, or we try to quantify costs in the pharmacy. Um, but we don't put all of those things together. So even though a pharmacoeconomic analysis might be able to say Procal at the end of the day may be a cost-effective therapy, it might still be hard to convince that administrator to bring it into the hospital. So did anything surprise you about the results of your study or what you found during the process of this meta-analysis? You know, it was not terribly surprising. Like we had a hypothesis that if we separate out the different phases of antibiotics, then we would find maybe a mortality benefit in cessation. And we in fact found that. Um, I think the part that um, was maybe a little surprising is you, you would think, you know, if procalcitonin was just used in the cessation phase, it would have the most decrease in um, antimicrobial use. But in fact, we saw the most increase, most decrease in the mixed strategy uh, group. Um, so the cessation phase, there was um, about 1.3 days decrease in the use of antimicrobials. But in the mixed procalcitonin studies, there was almost a three-day decrease in antimicrobial use. And I just couldn't necessarily wrap my head around why that might be. Um, however, you know, once again, there's there's just a few studies looking at the mixed procalcitonin. So it, it might be a fa- the fact that, um, you know, um, that you know, there's just not enough representation or not not high enough sample size, and therefore the it looks like it's, it's much higher. But if we add more studies, then it might come back down. So I'm not 100 percent sure of that. Thank you again, Simon, to come on to our uh, podcast and chat with me. This concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. Please check our website at www.sccm.org/iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific, dedicated to providing clinicians with tools to help determine whether to initiate and when to stop antibiotic therapy in patients presenting with lower respiratory tract infection and those with suspected or confirmed sepsis. The Brahms PCT assay is used in hospitals nationwide to support antibiotic stewardship and is available on multiple immunoassay platforms from BioMeru, Roche, Abbott, Fujirabio, Diaz-Serin, Siemens, and Thermo Fisher Scientific. Learn more at thermoscientific.com backslash about sepsis. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the Director for Transplant Anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital. 
after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.